All right, this morning we are going to be in um, two different passages. We're going to be studying in Psalm 69. So if you want to go ahead and turn there and uh, maybe put your bulletin or perhaps you've got a ribbon on your Bible or just a bookmark or something that you have, just kind of stick it in there to hold your place in Psalm 69. And then in just a moment, we'll read together from John chapter 2. Let me set the scene. It is the final week of Jesus's life. He has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and it's late. He looks around the temple and he sees some stuff going on, but he doesn't worry about it because the sun is almost setting and and he, he's got some disciples to make sure they're taken care of. And so they, they leave Jerusalem late in the afternoon and head out to Bethany. They have a, a rest overnight. On the way, they find this uh, uh, tree Jesus is hungry. He, he goes to, uh, to, comes up to it to find fruit. There's no fruit on it, so he curses the tree. They end up in Bethany. They stay the night. The next day, they get up. And on the way back into Jerusalem, they got, walk right past that tree. And now it is withered away. And Peter can't believe his eyes. He's like, look at the tree you cursed. It's now withered. And Jesus tells them, basically, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's right. It's withered um, because it hadn't fulfilled its purpose. It was now wor- not worth living at all. And so now that it's cursed by Jesus, that fig tree is completely withered. Draws a parallel to the temple scene that they're going to see in just a few minutes. Because when Jesus walks into the temple, he is not a happy camper. He saw what was going on the night before. Mark sets all this up and, and shows us the timeline. The night before, the evening before, the, the afternoon before, he's walking in the temple and he's seeing this stuff happen. So the next day when he walks in, he's a man on a mission. He is taking names, clearing out tables, overturning left and right, chasing people out. He is, he is causing a ruckus. And he says, well, well, let's read from John chapter 2. Stand with me as we read John 2, verses 13 through 17. This is God's word, and it may not be the nicest word. It may not be the most polite word, but it's still God's word. And if you let it, it will still change your life. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus not only gives us the example of how to love, and he also gives us the example of how to love. Because this wasn't driven by hatred or jealousy or anger. It was driven by such a pure devotion to you. Father, may we be the ones that are so devoted to you that when it requires overturning tables and chasing people out, we're willing to. When it requires loving someone who's hard to love, we're willing to. When it requires more than we can handle, 
We know that in your strength, you can handle it. And so we're willing to obey. Father, make us consumed with zeal for you. In this time, use your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So he's whipping people. He's overturning tables. He's dumping out money. He's chasing out animals. What has gotten into this Jesus? I mean, was he just that hungry? Was he just that mad that he couldn't have figs off a tree? No. No, this isn't just hunger. This isn't, no. Verse 17 tells us, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69. And so what we have in Psalm 69 is the prayer of a man, David specifically, but it's representative of any of God's people. A prayer of someone who is under duress, who is crying out to God for help, who finds themselves not only suffering because of their own sin, but suffering because of enemies that have taken advantage of the opportunity. What we find in Psalm 69 is the prayer of someone who wants to follow God and is in dire straits. And what we see in John chapter 2 is this prayer being lived out. Well, here, let's take a look. I find find this, this idea of being consumed with zeal just... I find it to be an, an interesting parallel to the way that we need to live our lives, okay? I find that it's not just uh, a something that you do on a one-off thing. This needs to be the way that we live. We, if you look up in the dictionary, the word consumed, it means totally used up. There's nothing left. If you are consumed with something, it takes everything in you. I think back to when I was a teenager. Y'all, y'all, some of y'all, it's a long time, I know, but you can remember when you were teenagers and there was that girl or there was that boy and everything revolved around that girl or that boy. Y'all, y'all with me here? You could, she, she could have been murdering people with an axe. You would have still thought she was an angel from heaven. I mean, it didn't matter what she did. Or he, for you ladies, you could have looked at him and he would have been Prince Charming may as well have been riding to school on a white horse every day. And uh, it doesn't matter what he did around his friends. It didn't matter what else he did. You, that, that all is just, it doesn't matter what mama and daddy were saying. That didn't matter. Nobody could talk you out of it. It's just, it was just that way. Okay? Y'all, y'all remember those times? Okay? Maybe it was, uh, I remember kind of doing this with musical groups. You'd hear a song. Now, for some of you, that you still hear that song now, and you and and you get the warm fuzzies, right? You still hear uh, a Beatles song or an Elvis song or whoever it might happen to be, and, and you still get those feelings, that nostalgia of youth, right? For me, in my generation, it was it was any band basically that was named after a place was good, whether it was Alabama or Kansas or whatever. That those tended to be the good groups. They were all named after some place. There's a tendency, especially in youth, to be consumed with whatever you're interested in. Whatever you are interested in, it is all about that thing. It doesn't matter. All the the stuff that other people tell you, that doesn't matter. You are consumed with that one thing, at least for a couple of weeks. And then you're consumed with something else, right? I've always said that if you could get the zeal of a youth and the direction of an adult who knows what they're doing and put them into one person, man, you'd have a combination. 
Someone who is just consumed with what they need to be consumed about. If you are just, if you are willing to be consumed with the right thing, man, that can go a long way. Psalm 69 is an invitation to be consumed with the right thing. Consumed with a zeal, not just for something, but for someone. And I find that when you're consumed, there's a couple things that'll be true about you. First, and I'm going to state these in the negative, but then as we go along, I'm going to also state them in the positive. Okay, so I'm going to state them as a, something that you cannot be when you're consumed, but I'm also going to state it as something that when you are consumed, this is what it means. Okay, so follow along with me. First, you cannot remain when you're consumed with zeal, especially zeal for God, you cannot remain indifferent to the things of God. It is absolutely impossible for you to remain indifferent about the things of God when you're consumed with zeal for him. Look in Psalm 69, verse 9. This is where that quote comes from in John 2. He says at the beginning of that verse, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Now, is the Messiah only concerned about the house of God? No. He's concerned about the God of the house. But because I'm concerned about God, I'm concerned about his house. Because I'm concerned about God, I'm concerned about the things of God. I'm not going to allow my love for God not to translate into love for the things that belong to him. But I'm going to love his things. That's why, boys, when we tell you not to run in here, and girl, when we tell you not to run in here, I'm talking to my kids, we're not telling you that just because we want to be mean and, and make you suffer. We're telling you that because this is a special place. This is God's place. And because we love God, we want to take care of his place. Now this, we call this God's house, but God can't live here. It's way too small for him. I mean, we look around, there's, there's like lots of empty seats. Still not enough room for God. You get the whole world, can't contain God. It's not just about this being the place where he lives, per se. Like, like this place is the only place he can be. No, 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 you see, the house of God is representative. It represents God's presence among his people. So it's not so much about the building as what the building represents. When you're in the, in the wilderness with the nation of Israel moving uh, from Mount Sinai on through the wilderness, 40 years of travels before they get to the land of Canaan. During that time, they build this ark, and this ark represents the presence of God. And when the ark goes out, the people are following the ark. When the, when the ark stays, the people are all encamped around the ark. The ark would sit in the middle, in the tabernacle, they built, they had this tabernacle, this really fancy tent that was designed to house the Ark of the Covenant. And whenever they picked up and moved, they would pick up that tent, put it, put all the pieces up together, and they would drag it along with them. They carry it along to the next stop. And then in the middle of all the camps of Israel sits the tabernacle, and in that tabernacle sits the Ark. It's God dwelling among his people, not because he lives on this bench. Not because he lives in this tent, but because God is willing to put his presence in this place in the middle of his people. That's what God's house represents. It's what the temple represented in Jerusalem. It's what this place represents here. It's God's presence among his people. 
And because this is the representation of God's presence with his people, we care for this place because we care for the one to whom this place is dedicated. You, that's why in Matthew's account, when Matthew tells the story of this temple cleansing, Jesus said to them, Matthew 21, 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. They were exploiting people through all of these sales. You don't think when it's your last chance to buy the, the animals for your offerings, you don't think they're going to jack the prices up, do you? Oh, of course they did. I mean, you ever go to a football game? They must really like their hot dogs. I mean, they, uh, apparently when you're watching football, hot dogs are just so much more valuable. Now, I will say, I have worked, um, can, I have worked at a restaurant in a mall. There is probably some higher cost associated with that. Getting the hot dog to the stadium and being able to sell it, it does cost a little bit more than in your favorite restaurant down the road, okay? I will say there is an increase in cost, but it ain't that much. No, why is it more? Because you're stuck there and you're hungry, right? They would sell animals in the temple, but they'd sell them for exorbitant prices just to collect extra money, make a little extra. Oh, you, you, you want to pay your tithe? Well, you know, you have to do that in temple coins. And since this is the only place you can get temple coins, it's a nice exchange rate for the money changers. Let's just put it that way. They turn this into a business opportunity. And that's not to mention all the smells and all the sounds of animals running around all over the place. I don't know about you, but when I pray or when I read, I can't have a bunch of noise. I know, I've got four kids. That doesn't work very well. I, I, need, I need quiet or calm at least. Do you think a whole lot of people are really turning to God in this place with all that racket? Both <laughs> figurative and literal. With all that noise and with all the racketeering going on. You think, you think anybody can really, can really get close to God in that place? It was awfully hard. Now there were some. There were some that were able to do it in spite of all that. That's the exception, not the rule. Now, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer because he recognized that this ought to be the place where people come to God, not the place to make a profit. You're turning it into a den of robbers. This is supposed to be God's place of presence. And you're turning it into a place of ill-gotten gains. That's why zeal for his house consumed Christ. Because this is God's place and you're ruining it. When we're consumed with God, one of the things that that means, being consumed means loving what God loves. And it's not just about the house. It's not just about the building, though, though you should take care of the building and you should appreciate the building and you should, you should be careful with the building. It's not just about the building because what does God love more than the building? The people. That's why he says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Watch this. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. You see, God loves people. He's not just concerned about buildings. 
Though those buildings can help us to sense God's presence, He cares about people. And so when you love what God loves, when you're consumed with zeal for God, you're going to love other people. That's why the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself is like love the Lord your God because if you love God, you will love neighbor because God loves your neighbor. And you're just copying dad. You're just doing what dad does. You're loving them because God has loved you and God loves them. And so it's only fitting. You cannot remain indifferent to the things of God if you're consumed with zeal for God. You also cannot remain absent from the sufferings of God. Psalm 69, verse nine. Look at the second part of the verse. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We want to exclude this part of the verse. We want to hide this part of the verse. In fact, John doesn't even quote this part of the verse. He just quotes the first part. And so you think, oh, well, it's just the first part that applies. No, 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 no. No, because part of being consumed with zeal for God means you're going to have enemies. You're going to be reproached. In fact, you will be alienated and ridiculed because of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if you're a jerk and you go out there and you tell people that they should love Jesus, that you're automatically being persecuted for the gospel. No, you're probably being persecuted because you're being a jerk. Don't do the jerk thing, okay? But... If you love God, you're not going to be friends with everybody. In fact, this isn't in the PowerPoint, John chapter 15. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You're in good company. If you were of the world, listen to this, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You will be alienated. You will be ridiculed because of God. Now, it may not happen all the time. It may not happen from everybody. But if you stand on the things of God, if you declare the word of God and you don't back down from it, you will make enemies. I know not a lot of amens, but it's still true. Look in, look in Psalm 69. Don't believe me? Let's go to the word. Psalm 69, verse four. More in number then the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. By the way, that John chapter 15, a few verses later, he quotes this part of the psalm too. They hated me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? The psalmist is speaking from the standpoint of one who has committed sin, but now his enemies have seen his suffering and have jumped on board. Oh, he's down. Let's go kick him while he's down. It's that sort of a situation with David. We don't know exactly when he wrote it, but we know whatever it was, his enemies are starting to compound because they see an opportunity. They see a chance that maybe, just maybe, we can overcome him. This is the strong, one of the strongest, uh, one of two strongest kings in Israel's history. Him and Solomon would have the largest kingdoms of Israel, would have the most wealth of any kings of Israel. 
These would be the guys that, I mean, this was the warrior king who would, who would set the Philistines back in their place, including a nine foot, nine inch tall one named Goliath. That's this guy. This guy is the one who is constantly battling and constantly defeating enemies and kings from far away are bringing tribute. Now that he's down, we've got our chance. Now that he's down, let's get him. But how much more true is it of the Messiah that they're hating him without cause? You know why the world hates him? Because he reveals who they are. You see, if Jesus had just come to be a nice guy and that's it, nobody would care what he said. Oh yeah, he's a good teacher. You don't see this kind of upsetting at just nice guys. You don't see nice guys to where 2,000 years later, people are still debating whether he was who he says he was. You don't see that happen with nice guys. In fact, you hardly ever hear of a nice guy 2,000 years later. It's either guys like Jesus or you don't hear about him at all. In other words, you don't, you cannot stand on the truth and avoid suffering. It can't happen because you will be alienated and ridiculed because of God. Now the question is, uh, is it because of him or is it because of you? Is it because you're doing what he wants you to do and you're standing on his truth? And, and, and if that's the case, then, hey, you look who your enemies are and you can tell if you're on the right track. If you got the right enemies, you're doing something right. You got the wrong enemies, then that's a problem. But if you got the right enemies, if you got people who are just bought in to a, a demonic spirit of the age that says that you have to believe this no matter what, if that's, if that's what you're against, if you're against people, uh, if you're against people that say, that you should have the right to kill other people without ramification, you probably got good enemies. Like if those are your enemies, if it's people that are saying you should, you should be able to kill anyone at any time for any reason, and that's your enemy, probably in good shape. If your enemy is someone who's standing on the word of God and is speaking truth, well then that's, that's a danger sign. Verse eight, I have become a stranger to my brothers even my own family, an alien to my mother's sons, even, even within the family. That's immediately before verse 9, immediately after verse 9, verses 10 and 11. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Even when I'm doing the things that are right, people are reproaching me because of it. I think of Daniel. He's praying. The law gets written. You can't pray to anybody but the king for 30 days. Now suddenly, Daniel's praying becomes an act of sedition against the king. Of course, it really wasn't sedition against the king. And the king protected Daniel and the consequences. Verse 11, when I made, my, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. See, the fact is that being consumed means being willing to endure suffering. Not suffering because you've done something wrong and you're now to blame and the suffering is a punishment of your sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the suffering that comes from standing on the word of God, of prophesying and preaching and proclaiming truth. And you think, well, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a preacher. Well, you still proclaim truth. 
And if you're willing to stand firm, if you're willing to speak the truth, if you're willing to do what God says that you are to do, then you're going to suffer. Being consumed with zeal for God means you're willing to suffer. And not only willing to suffer, but willing to endure through suffering. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you. We talk about the Beatitudes, and, and we act like it's all roses and, and sunshine and beautiful spring day. And then in verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice it's false, it's not true. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Yeah, you're suffering now, but there's a reward coming that'll make all the suffering worth it. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in a scene company. When you are consumed with zeal for God, you cannot remain indifferent to the things of God. What God loves, you'll love. And when you're consumed with God, you cannot remain absent from the sufferings of God. You must be willing to endure suffering. Lastly, when you are consumed with zeal for God, you cannot remain oblivious to the salvation of God. Now, you might not see it working for a while. You might not see God's hand in it. You might see things going along and think, well, I don't know how God is turning this around. I don't know how he's going to redeem it. I don't know how God is going to take this and make it something good. And for a while, you might be right. For a while, it might be that that, that you don't see it and it's all behind the scenes, but he's working it. And eventually, sooner or later, you're going to see the effects of God's salvation. Sooner or later, you are going to see the effect of God doing his work in your life. You may not know it then, but you will one day. uh, uh, See, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that most often we would much rather God lay it out ahead of time just so we could see it coming. Because it's so much easier when we know what's down the road. That's why when we go to meetings, you almost always get some sort of agenda before the meeting. You go to a business meeting, you get an agenda. This is the things we're going to be talking about. And when we do business meetings at the church here, we do do them uh, uh, once a quarter, and we have a set formula. First, we read the minutes. Then we vote on the financials. Then we talk about old business. Then we talk about new business. And then we adjourn. Okay? There's a formula. We know what's coming. Now, sometimes you might not know the specific details of something that's coming, but you kind of know in advance what's coming. And we get uncomfortable when we don't know ahead of time. We get uncomfortable. Some churches will tell you in the bulletin, they will lay out all of the service. They'll tell you every song you're going to sing and and exactly when you're going to do it, who's going to pray this prayer, uh, when the message is going to start. They'll walk through the whole thing right there in the bulletin. We like to know ahead of time what's coming. We feel more comfortable. We can prepare ourselves. God doesn't do that though. And I really think he doesn't do it because he's not after your comfort. He's after your trust. You see, if God told us everything in advance, where would trust be? Where would faith be? That's that's the funny thing. He does tell us the end. He doesn't quite lay out how he's going to get there. 
And when he does, it's a book like Revelation that's crazy and no, none of us really quite understand it completely. Like he shows us what's going to happen and we don't even get it. Maybe that's part of why he doesn't show us. <laughs> I'm convinced though that God is fully able to save no matter what the circumstance is. I'm convinced that God is completely and fully able to save in any circumstance whatsoever. No matter how bad it is, no matter how long it's been going on, no matter how far you've wandered away from Him, it doesn't matter. God is able fully, completely to save anyone and everyone who is willing to be saved. Seems like, seems like there's a passage of Scripture. There's something along the lines of whosoever uh, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice it doesn't say whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord as long as you're not in this particular place. Whosoever that isn't between the ages of this and that. Whosoever is at least this tall. Isn't that good? And some of you short folks are like, yes, that's good. No taller than this. Some of you tall folks would be glad for that one. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. No caveats. No exceptions. No exclusions. Restrictions do not apply. Whosoever. God is fully able to say, verses 13 and 14 show this clear. But as for me, he's just talked about his enemies. He's just talked about how, how, how all this reproach has come upon him when he's trying to serve God. He says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from my sinking in the mire. Let me de be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. At the beginning of the psalm, he's talking about all of this trouble coming over his head like waters, like he's sinking in quicksand. And now he's saying, God, I'm trusting you to deliver me. Verses 35 and 36, the end of the psalm. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offsprings of his servant shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. It's not just for one person. This is for all of God's people. He's not able to save one individually here and there, but he can't really do anything about the masses. No, no, no. God is able to save many or few. God is able to save one, one thousand, one million, one billion. It's all the same to him. It takes no... He doesn't even have to lift an extra finger. But what does that have to do with me? Well, if he's able to do all that, shouldn't you trust him? I mean, he's trustworthy. So shouldn't we trust him? Being consumed means trusting God completely. Not just, not just, not just with one aspect of life. I said being consumed means being all used up. You can't go halfway in and be consumed. Right? Just like the teenager looking at that boy or that girl. And you can't go halfway. It's not like iffy, uh, I don't really know. No, consumed is all about that. Right? Just like, just like Messiah is so consumed with the things of God that he can say, I and my Father are one. Being consumed means it's got to be complete, total. Nothing left out. This isn't a vacuum attachment that you can use when you want to and then take it off when you don't want it anymore. That little uh, 
We have vacuum with several different attachments, and one of them is this real thin thing. It's like circle on the bottom, and then up top it goes to this thin. It's good for corners and crevices and things. Um, have you ever tried to do the whole floor with that one attachment? That doesn't work, does it? That's how we think of religion. Like it's just an attachment, and, and we need it for this area of our life, but it doesn't really apply over here. We use another attachment over there. I'll run my business with the business attachment. With the entrepreneur attachment or with the, with the, um, with the CEO attachment. I'll run it there. My home life. Well, home life, maybe we need a little bit of that religion to get into those hard to reach areas, maybe. But, but, you know, I just need a general floor cleaner with my family. Or I just need something a little more broad. When I, when I go out into the world and I'm talking to cashiers at the grocery store, if you still, if your grocery store still has cashiers, Right? But you come across a cashier and you're chatting with them. Well, I'll just, I might use the religion attachment here if it's easy, if it's convenient. But you know, I, I might also use this other attachment, the friendly attachment. Don't ruffle any feathers, just be nice. Religion isn't a vacuum attachment. True zeal for God consumes you, it's everything. I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah. He says in chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, hey, look! That's what that word means. In fact, when I, um, I always pick your exclamation points after that word because it helps me remember that this is an interjection. This isn't a continuation of what's happened. No, this is to get you to stop and look at this. This is important. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. You want to know what it looks like? That. When you can trust God enough that you are not afraid. Now, does that mean you don't take adequate precautions? No. You still need to wash your hands before you eat. You still need to be careful about how you drive because there's crazy people driving. Nuts. Some of them are in this room. I'm not going to mention any names, but I are one. Look out for me. You see me driving, pull over. Just pull over. But trusting in God means I can use caution, but not be driven by fear. How much of the last 24 months has been fear? If you are being driven by fear, you need this verse. If you are being driven by fear, you need to know that God is not the author of that fear. If you're being driven by fear, you need to trust him. Because when you trust, you won't be afraid. Oh, it doesn't matter what the suffering is. It doesn't matter what the danger is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It can be bad. And it can be hard. And I'm not saying this is going to make it easy. But I am saying you don't have to be afraid. Because the one you trust in can handle it. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. I picture, maybe you remember, I don't know, they might still be running. There's these commercials where people are singing the song about getting money. I think it's J.G. Wetworth, I think. You know what I'm talking about? And you've got one of the guys is this giant, huge man wearing this Viking helmet and all his garb, and, and he's got this deep bass voice, you know? It's like, I love that guy. Represent the bass. I like it. I'm a bass. I like bass. 
I think of God in those kinds of terms of both being strong and with beautiful melody on his lips. What a picture. He is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I got to be honest with you. You, you probably been, if you're like me, there's times in your life where you find you're not consumed with zeal for God. You're, you're consumed with something else. Maybe it's that guy or that girl or that music group. Maybe it's the, the pressing needs of the day, the business affairs that you have to go through and deal with. Uh, maybe you're consumed with the problems that are going on in your family. Maybe you're consumed with uh, any host of things. I, I feel bad because I want to I wanna name enough that all of us can say, yeah, I know what that's like. But I don't want to name too much because we'd all be in tears. But i got to be honest with you. There's really only one way to live. Being consumed by God is the only way to true life in God. If you want to have real life, and I'm not just talking about the kind that you survive and you hang on for dear life. I'm talking about I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That kind of life. There's only one way to have that. And that's consumed with zeal for God. Anything less just doesn't work. It's kind of like standing on a dock with one foot and standing in a boat with the other foot and wanting to sail around the world. Doesn't work. If you want to sail anywhere, you got to get both feet in the boat. Unless you're Jesus, then you just walk on the water. But if you want to go somewhere, you got to get both your feet. You got to get all of you. You can't just be halfway between. We live lives that call us in so many different directions, and it's so easy to, to, to want to do a little bit, little bit of that. I mean, we have restaurants that, that you can buy anything from hamburgers and chicken to spaghetti to... Chinese food, all in one restaurant. We like having a little of this and a little of that and making it, personalizing it to what we like. But the fact of the matter is that until you are completely consumed by God, completely consumed with zeal for Him, you will not know what real life is.